Chapter 15, Part 1 A Discourse on Mercifulness Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7 These verses, like the stairs of Solomon's temple, cause our ascent to the Holy of Holies. We are now climbing up a step higher. Blessed are the merciful. There was never more need to preach about mercifulness than in these unmerciful times in which we live. It is reported that John Chrysostom preached much on this subject of mercifulness, and because he so often urged Christians to this topic of mercy, many people called him the alms preacher or the preacher for mercy. Our times need many Chrysostoms. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy stands both in the front and in the rear of the text. At the beginning of the text it stands as a duty. At the end of the text it stands as a reward. The Hebrew word for godly signifies merciful. The more godly one is, the more merciful he is. The doctrine I will gather out of the words which will grasp and bring in the whole is that the merciful person is a blessed person just as a curse hangs over the head of the unmerciful person. Let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds, and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let strangers spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Psalm 109, 6-14. Why? What is the crime? Because that he remembered not to show mercy. Psalm 109, 16. See what a large bottle full of the plagues of God is poured out upon the unmerciful person. So, by the rule of contraries, the blessings of the Almighty crown and encompass the merciful person. The merciful person is a blessed person. 2 Samuel 22, 26. Psalm 37, 26. Psalm 41, 1. To illustrate this, I will first show what is meant by mercifulness, and second, I will show the different kinds of mercy. What is meant by mercifulness? I answer that it is a tender disposition whereby we lay to heart the afflictions of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. How do mercy and love differ? In some things they agree, and in some things they differ, like waters that may have two different fountainheads but meet in the stream. Love and mercy differ in that love is more extensive. The area in which love walks and visits is larger. Mercy properly respects those who are afflicted, but love is of a larger consideration. Love is like a friend who visits those who are well. Mercy is like a physician who only visits those who are sick. Love acts more out of affection, while mercy acts out of a principle of conscience. Mercy lends its help to another, while love gives its heart to another. And so they differ, but love and mercy agree in that they are both ready to do good. Both of them have depths of compassion and healing under their wings. From where does mercy come? Its fountainhead rises higher than nature. Mercy, taken in its full range, proceeds from a work of grace in the heart. We are by nature far enough from mercy. The sinner is a thorn bush, not a fig tree yielding sweet fruit. It is the character and sign of a natural man to be unmerciful. Romans 1 31. A wicked man, like Jehoram, has his bowels fallen out. 2 Chronicles 21.19. Therefore, he is compared to an adamant stone, Zechariah 7.12, because his heart does not melt in mercy. 
Before conversion, the sinner is compared to a wolf for his savageness, to a lion for his fierceness, Isaiah 11:6, to a bee for his sting, Psalm 118:12, and to an adder for his poison, Psalm 140:3. By nature, we do not send forth oil but poison, not the oil of mercifulness, but the poison of maliciousness. In addition to that inbred unmercifulness that is in us, there is also something added by Satan. The prince of the power of the air works in the children of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2. He is a fierce spirit, and therefore is called the red dragon, Revelation 12, 3. If he possesses people, it is no wonder that they are cruel and without mercy. What mercy can be expected from hell? If the heart is ever tuned into mercifulness, it is from the change that grace has made. Colossians 3:12. When the sun shines, the ice melts. When the sun of righteousness shines beams of grace upon the soul, it melts in mercy and tenderness. You must first be a new person before you can be a merciful person. You cannot help a member of Christ until you yourself are a member. The different kinds of mercy, or how many ways a person may be said to be merciful. Mercy is a fountain that runs in five streams. We must be merciful to the souls, names, possessions, offenses, and needs of others. We must be merciful to the souls of others. This is spiritual alms. Indeed, soul mercy is the leading mercy. The soul is the most precious thing. It is a vessel of honor. It is a bud of eternity. It is a gleam lit by the breath of God. It is a rich diamond set in a ring of clay. The soul has the blood of God to redeem it and the image of God to beautify it. It is of such a high descent, sprung from the ancient of days, that the mercy that is shown to the soul must necessarily be the greatest. This soul mercy to others is seen in four areas. 1. In pitying them. Augustine asked, If I weep for that body from which the soul is departed, how much more should I weep for that soul from which God is departed? If we had seen that man in the gospel cutting himself with stones and bringing blood out of himself, it would have moved our compassion. Mark 5, 5. To see a sinner stabbing himself and having his hands stained in his own blood should cause melting in our hearts. Our eye should affect our heart. God was angry with Edom because he cast off all pity. Amos 1, 11. 2. In advising and exhorting sinners, tell them what a sad condition they are in, even in the gall of bitterness. Acts eight twenty three. Show them their danger. They tread upon the banks of the bottomless pit. If death gives them a push, they tumble in. We must dip our words in honey and use all the mildness we can. In meekness, instructing those. Second Timothy two twenty five. Fire melts, and ointment soothes. Words of love may melt hard hearts into repentance. This is soul mercy. God made a law that whoever saw his enemy's donkey lying under a burden should help him. Exodus 23 5. Based upon these words, Chrysostom said that we will help an animal that has fallen under a burden, and will we not extend relief to those who have fallen under a worse burden of sin? 3. In reproving defiant sinners. There is a cruel mercy when we see people continue in sin and we leave them alone, and there is a merciful cruelty when we are strong against people's sins and will not let them go to hell quietly. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Leviticus 19:17. Affectionate empathy in this is no better than cruelty. Rebuke them sharply, cuttingly. Titus 1:13. The surgeon cuts and pierces the flesh, but it is in order to cure. 
They are healing wounds. In the same way, by cutting reproof, when we pierce people's consciences and let out the blood of sin, we exercise spiritual surgery. This is showing mercy. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Jude 1 23. If someone were in the fire, although you hurt him a little in pulling him out, he would be thankful and take it as a kindness. Some people, when we tell them of sin, say, Oh, this is hostility. No, it is showing mercy. If someone's house were on fire, and another person sees it and does not tell him about it for fear of waking him, would this not be cruelty? When we see others sleeping the sleep of death, Psalm 13, 3, and the fire of God's wrath ready to burn around their ears, and we are silent, is not this to be accessory to their death? And four, in praying for others. This is like medicine used in a desperate case, and often the sick patient recovers. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5:16. As it cures the sick body, so it also cures the sin-sick soul. There is a story of someone who gave his soul to the devil who was saved through the prayers of Luther. By sin, the soul is fallen from a high loft, a state of innocence. Fervent prayer often results in life in such a dead soul. See what a blessed work the work of the ministry is. The preaching of the Word is nothing except showing mercy to souls. This is a mighty and glorious instrument in the hand of the Lord of hosts for breaking down the devil's strongholds. The ministry of the Word not only brings light with it, but it also brings eye salve, anointing the eyes to see that light. It is a sin-killing and soul-awakening ordinance. It is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16 What enemies they are to their own souls who oppose the ministry! They say that the people who live near the equator curse the sun and are glad when the sun sets because of its burning heat. Foolish sinners curse the sun rising of the ministry and are offended at its light because it comes near their sins and scorches their consciences, even though in the end it saves their souls. It reproves those who have no mercy to souls, such as evil judges, politicians, and ministers. It reproves evil leaders who either take away the key of knowledge, Luke 11.52, or tolerate wickedness, allowing people to sin with permission. The meaning of toleration is that if people will themselves to hell, no one will stop them. Is not nature poisoned enough? Do not people sin fast enough, but must they have such political figures move them up higher in wickedness? Must they have such favorable gales from the breath of powerful people that serve to carry them full sail to the devil? This is far from soul mercy. What a difficult reckoning these people will have in the day of the Lord! Evil ministers are those who have no compassion for the souls of their people. They do not pity them or pray for them. They do not seek them, but they seek what they have. They don't preach for love, but for money. Their care is more for tithes than for souls. How can they be called spiritual fathers if they are without compassion? These are mercenaries, not ministers. Such men do not feed the souls of their people with solid truths. When Christ sent out His apostles, He gave them their text and told them what they must preach. Preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 10, 7. Martin Luther said about this text that the ministers of Christ must preach things that pertain to the kingdom of God. Things such as pardon of sin, sanctification, and living by faith alone, as the church needs. Those men are unmerciful to souls who, instead of breaking the bread of life, fill their people's heads with empty opinions and ideas, who entertain rather than touch the conscience, and who give precious souls music rather than food. There are some who darken knowledge with words and preach as if they were speaking in an unknown tongue. 
Some ministers love to soar aloft like the eagle and fly above their people's capacities, endeavoring to be admired rather than understood. They are like some haughty authors who cannot be read without a comment. Indeed, God calls His ministers ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5.20, but they must not be like those peculiar ambassadors who cannot be understood without an interpreter. It is unmerciful to souls to preach so as not to be understood. Ministers should be stars to give light, not clouds to obscure the truth. The Apostle Paul was educated, yet plain. Clearness and clarity is the grace of speech. It is cruelty to souls when we go about to make easy things hard. Many people in our age are guilty of this. Many ministers go into the pulpit only to tie knots, and they think it is their glory to amuse and please the people. This resembles pride more than mercifulness. There are also ministers who see others going on in sin, but do not tell them of it. When people declare their sin as Sodom, it is the minister's duty to lift up his voice like a trumpet and show the house of Jacob their sins. Isaiah 58, 1. Zeal in the ministry is as proper as fire on the altar. He who lets another person sin and remains silent is a murderer. That sentinel deserves death who sees the enemy approaching and does not give warning. Ezekiel 3.20. Some ministers poison souls with error. How dangerous is the leprosy of the head! Delirium is worse than a fever. What will we say to such ministers who give poison to their people in a golden cup? Are not these unmerciful? There are others, unworthy of the name of ministers, who are traveling ministers, the devil's journeymen, who ride up and down and compass the earth with Satan to devour souls. It would grieve one's heart to see poor, unstable creatures misled by crude and ignorant men who feed the people with blasphemy and nonsense and make them fitter for the madhouse than for the new Jerusalem. All these people are unmerciful to souls. Let me urge all who fear God to show soul mercy. Strengthen the weak. Guide the wandering. Raise up those who are fallen. He which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. James 5.20 We must be merciful to the names of others. A good name is one of the greatest blessings upon earth. No string of pearls adorns as well as this. Since this is so, we should be very tender of names. Those who make no conscience of taking away the good names of their brethren are to be held in a high degree unmerciful. Their throats are open sepulchres to bury the fame and reputation of people. Romans 3.13 It is a great cruelty to murder a person's name. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Song of Solomon 5 7. Some expositors interpret this as referring to her honor and fame that covered her as a beautiful veil. The basis of this unmercifulness to names is first, pride. Pride is something that cannot endure to be outshined. It doesn't like to see itself exceeded in possessions and power. Therefore, it will behead another in his good name so that he may appear lower. The proud person will pull down others in their reputation, and so by their decline thinks he will shine brighter. The breath of a proud man causes a blast or blight upon character. And second, envy. Lay aside all envies. 1 Peter 2 1. An envious person maligns the dignity of another and therefore seeks to harm him in his name. Christianity teaches us to rejoice in the esteem and fame of others. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Romans 1, 8. It is declared with honor. A good report is a credit to the Christian religion. Hebrews 11, 2. If people who profess godliness do not have a good name, the Christian religion will not have a very good name. Envy, consulting with the devil, 
lays a track, and brings fire from hell to blow up the good name of another. We may be unmerciful to the names of others in many ways. First, by misrepresenting them, which is a sin forbidden. Thou shalt not raise a false report. Exodus 23.1. Eminence is commonly shattered by slander. Their tongue is as an arrow shot out. Jeremiah 9.8. The tongue of a slanderer shoots out words to wound the fame of another and make it bleed to death. The saints of God in all ages have met with unmerciful people who have invented things about them that they have not been guilty of. Surius the Jesuit reported of Martin Luther that he learned his divinity from the devil, and that he died drunk. But Melanchthon, who wrote his biography, affirmed that he died in a most pious and holy manner, and made a most excellent prayer before his death. David complained, They laid to my charge things that I knew not. Psalm 35.11. The Greek word for devil signifies slanderer. 1 Timothy 3.11. Not slanderers in the Greek is not devils. Some people think that it's no great sin to defame and slander another, but know that to slander is to act the part of a devil. Oh, how many unmerciful people there are who indeed pass for Christians, but play the devil inventing their lies and slander. Wicked people in Scripture are called dogs. Psalm 22.16. Slanderers are not like those dogs that licked Lazarus's sores to heal them, but they are like the dogs that ate Jezebel. They rend and tear the precious names of people. Emperor Valentinian decreed that he who was openly convicted of this crime of slander should die for it. Pope Gregory decreed that such a person should be excommunicated and not have the communion given to him. I think it was a just decree. Second, we are unmerciful to the names of others when we hear slander and then report what we hear. Thou shalt not go up and down as a tale-bearer among thy people. Leviticus 19.16. A good man is one who does not do evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Psalm 15.3. Not only should we not give a false report, but also we should not further one. To divulge a report before we speak with a party and know the truth of it is unmercifulness and cannot be guiltless of sin. The same word in the Hebrew that means to raise a slander also signifies to receive it. Exodus 23, 1. The receiver is just as bad as the thief. It is good if none of us have, in this sense, received stolen goods. When others have stolen away the good names of their brethren, have not we received these stolen goods? There would not be so many people to talk about false rumors if they did not see that this drink pleases other people's tastes. Third, we deal unmercifully with the names of others when we take away from their just worth and dignity by making more of their weaknesses and less of their virtues. Speak not evil one of another. James 4.11 I have read a story about a man named Idor, an abbot, that he was never heard to speak evil of anyone. Augustine could not endure that anyone would eclipse and lessen the fame of others, therefore he wrote those two lines upon his table, Whoever loves another's name to blast, this table's not for him, so let him fast. Wicked people are still shaving off the credit of their neighbors, and they make thick shavings. They shave off all that is good. Nothing is left except the core, something that may tend to their disparagement. Unmerciful people know how to boil a quart down to a pint. They have a devilish art to so diminish and lessen the merit of others that it is even boiled away to nothing. Some people, although they do not have the power of creation, have the power of annihilation. They can sooner annihilate the good that is in others than imitate it. Fourth, we are unmerciful to the names of others when we know them to be maligned, yet do not defend and vindicate them. 
A person may sometimes just as well wrong another by silence as by slander. He who is merciful to his brother is an advocate to plead in his behalf when he is harmfully maligned. When the apostles, who were filled with the wine of the Spirit, were charged with drunkenness, Peter vindicated them openly. Acts 2.15. A merciful person will take the dead fly out of the box of ointment. Ecclesiastes 10.1. And fifth, they are in a high degree unmerciful to the names of others who bear false witness against them. False witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. Psalm 27.12. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Exodus 23.1. Putting the hand is taking an oath falsely, as when someone puts his hand upon the book and swears to a lie. That is how Tostatus explained it. This false witness is a two-edged sword. The false witness wounds another's name and his own soul. A false witness is compared to a maul or hammer, Proverbs 25.18. It's true in the sense that he is so hardened in rude boldness that he finds shame in nothing and is comfortable in unmercifulness. There is no softness in a maul or hammer, nor is there any gentleness or compassion to be found in a false witness. In all these ways, people are unmerciful to the names of others. Let me urge all Christians, as they profess to desire to adhere to the Christian religion, to show mercy to the names of others. Be very considerate and tender of people's good names. Consider what a sin it is to defame anyone. Laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, 1 Peter 2.1. Envy and evil speaking are put together. We should lay them aside or put them away, as someone would put away a thing from him with indignation, as Paul shook off the viper, Acts 28.5. Consider also the harm it does. You who take away the good name of another, wound him in that which is most dear to him. It's better to take away a person's life than his name. By eclipsing his name, you bury him alive. It is an irreparable injury that will remain. A wound in the name is like a flaw in a diamond or a stain in an azure stone. It will never die out. No physician can heal the wounds of the tongue. God will punish those who commit such sin. If idle words must be accounted for, will not reproachful slanders also? God will make inquisition one day for names as well as for blood. Let all this convince you to use caution and discretion. You would be opposed to steal the possessions of others, but a person's name is of more worth. He who takes away the good name of another sins more than if he had taken the corn out of his field or the merchandise out of his shop. Especially beware of wounding the names of the godly. God has set a crown of honor on their heads, and will you take it off? Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Numbers 12.8. To defame the saints is no less than to defame God Himself, for they have His image drawn upon them, and are members of Christ. Oh, think how poorly Christ will take this at your hand one day! It was a sin under the old law to slander a virgin, and what is it then to slander Christ's spouse? The names of the saints are written in heaven, and will you blot them out upon earth? Be merciful to the names of others. Be merciful to the possessions of others. If someone is your debtor, and providence has frowned upon him so that he does not have any means to pay you, do not crush him when he's sinking, but ease up somewhat on the rigor of the law. Blessed are the merciful. The wicked are compared to beasts of prey that live upon plundering and spoil. They don't care what harm they do. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. Psalm 10, 9. Chrysostom says that drawing them into the net 
is when the rich draw the poor into bonds, and in case of non-payment at the day, the bond is forfeited, and the rich seize upon all they have. It is not justice, but cruelty, when others lie at our mercy, to be like that hard-hearted creditor in the gospel who took his debtor by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest, Matthew 18.28. God made the law that no man shall take the nether or the upper millstone to pledge, for he taketh a man's life to pledge, Deuteronomy 24.6. If a man had lent another man money, he must not take both his millstones for security. He must show mercy and leave the man something to earn a livelihood with. In this we should imitate God, who, in the midst of anger, remembers mercy. Habakkuk 3 2. God does not take the extremity of the law upon us, but when we don't have the means to pay, if we confess the debt, he freely forgives. Proverbs 28 13, Matthew 18 27. Certainly we may justly seek what belongs to us, but if others have been brought low and submit, we should in conscience remit something of the debt. Blessed are the merciful. We must be merciful to the offenses of others. Be ready to show mercy to those who have harmed you. Stephen, the first martyr, kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Acts 7.60. When he prayed for himself, he stood. But when he prayed for his enemies, he kneeled down, said Bernard, to show his earnestness in prayer and how greatly he desired God to forgive them. This is a rare kind of mercy. It is a person's glory to pass over a transgression. Proverbs 19.11. Mercy in forgiving wrongs is the standard as well as the crown of Christianity. Bishop Cranmer was of a merciful disposition. If any who had wronged him came to desire a favor from him, he would do all that he could for him, insomuch that it became a proverb, Do Cranmer harm, and he will be your friend as long as he lives. To overcome evil with good, Romans 12.21, and to answer malice with mercy, is truly heroic and renders Christianity glorious in the eyes of all. We must be merciful to the needs of others. This is what the text primarily intends. A good man does not, like a snake, twist within himself. His motion is direct, not circular. He is ever merciful and lendeth. Psalm 37, 26. This merciful kindness to the needs of others consists of three things. One, a judicious consideration. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. Psalm 41, 1. In this you must consider four things. First, it could have been your own situation. You yourselves might have stood in need of another's charity, and then how welcome and refreshing those streams would have been to you. Second, consider how sad a condition poverty is. Although Chrysostom called poverty the highway to heaven, yet he who travels this road will go weeping there. Consider the poor. Behold their tears, their sighs, and their dying groans. Look upon the deep furrows made in their faces, and consider if there is not a reason for you to scatter your seed of mercy in these furrows. For a cloak he has a tattered vesture, and for a couch he has a stone. The poor man feeds upon sorrow. He drinks tears. Psalm 85. Like Jacob, in a windy night, he has the clouds for his canopy and a stone for his pillow. Genesis 28, 11. Even further, consider that poverty often becomes not only a cross, but also a snare. It exposes people to much evil, which made Agur pray, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Proverbs 38. Need puts people upon indirect courses. The poor will risk their souls for money, which is like throwing diamonds at pear trees. If the rich would wisely consider this, their charity might prevent much sin. Third, consider why the wise God has allowed an inequality in the world. It is for the very reason that He wanted to have mercy exercised. If all people were rich, 
there would be no need of charity, nor could the merciful person have been so well known. If he who travelled to Jericho had not been wounded and left half dead, the good Samaritan who poured oil and wine into his wounds would not have been known. Luke 10, 30-35. If Iliam had stood, who would have known of Hector's name? And lastly, consider how quickly the balance of providence may turn. We ourselves may be brought to poverty, and then it would be no small comfort to us that we helped others while we were able to do so. Give a portion to seven, and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Ecclesiastes 11, 2. We cannot promise ourselves that our days will always be untroubled. God knows how soon many of us may change our pasture. The cup that now runs over with wine may be filled with the waters of Marah. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Ruth 1, 21. How many people have we seen invested with great lordships and possessions who have suddenly brought their manor to a morsel? Suddenly he becomes Iris, who was formerly a Croesus for wealth. In this sense, it is wisdom to consider the needs of others. Remember how quickly the scene may change. We may be put into the clothing of the poor, and, if adversity comes, it will not trouble our minds to think that while we were not as poor, we gave what we had to Christ's impoverished members. The first thing in mercifulness is a judicious consideration. 2. A tender compassion. If thou draw out thy soul to the hungry. Isaiah 58.10. Bounty begins in compassion. The Hebrew word for mercy signifies bowels. Christ first had compassion on the multitude, and then he worked a miracle to feed them. Matthew 15.32. Charity that lacks compassion is brutish. The brute creatures can help us in many ways, but they cannot empathize with us. Quintilian said that it is a kind of cruelty to feed someone in need without sympathizing with him. True Christianity produces tenderness. As it melts the heart in tears of contrition toward God, so it shows itself in hearts of compassion toward others. My bowels shall sound like an harp. Isaiah 16, 11. Likewise, when our hearts of compassion sound, then our charity makes sweet music in the ears of God. And three, mercifulness consists in a generous contribution. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need. Deuteronomy 15, 7-8. The Hebrew word for disperse, Psalm 112, 9, signifies a bountiful generosity. It must be like water that overflows the banks, not merely handing out a small amount of what one has. If God has enriched people with wealth, and has made his light to shine upon their heads, Job 29, 3, they must not embrace and hold on to all of it for themselves, but should be as the moon, which, having received its light from the sun, lets it shine to the world. The ancients, as Basil and Laurinus observed, made oil to be the emblem of charity. Like Aaron's oil, the golden oil of mercy must run down upon the poor, which are the lower skirts of the garment. Psalm 133, 2. God commands and grace compels this generous distribution to the needs and necessities of others. God commands. There is a specific statute. If thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Leviticus 25, 35. The Hebrew says, Thou shalt strengthen him. Put a silver crutch under him when he's falling. It is worthwhile for us to observe what great care God took of the poor, besides what was given to them privately. God made many laws for the public and visible relief of the poor. The seventh year thou shalt let the land rest and lie still. 
that the poor of thy people may eat. Exodus 23:11. God's intention in his law was that the poor should be abundantly provided for. They could freely eat of anything that grew of itself this seventh year, whether of herbs, vines, or olive trees. If it is asked how the poor could live only on these fruits, since there was, as it is probable, no corn growing then, Cajetan's answer is that they lived by selling these fruits and converting them into money, living upon the price of the fruits. There was another law made, and when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Leviticus 19, 9. See how God cared for the poor. For the poor's sake, some corners of the field were to be left uncut, and when the owners reaped, they were not to cut too near the earth with their sickle. The Vulgate Latin reads it, Thou shalt not shear to the very ground. Something like an aftercrop must be left. Tostatus said that the shorter ears of corn and those that lay bending to the ground were to be reserved for the poor. God made another law in favor of the poor. At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shalt lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, and the fatherless, and the widow which are within thy gates shall come and shall eat and be satisfied. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. The Hebrews write that every third year, in addition to the first tithe, given to Levi, which was called the perpetual tithe, Numbers 18.21, the Jews set apart another tithe of their increase for the use of the widows and orphans, and that was called the tithe of the poor. Also, at the solemn festivals of the Jews, the poor were to have a share. Deuteronomy 16.11. As relieving those in need was commanded under the law, so it stands in force under the gospel. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute. 1 Timothy 6, 17-18. It is not only advice, but it is a command, and not adhering to it results in an offense against the gospel. Thus we have seen the mind of God in this detail of charity. Let all good Christians comment upon it in their practice. What benefit is there of gold? while it is enclosed and locked up in the mine? What good does it do to have a great estate and much wealth if it is so stored and sheltered as never to see the light? Grace compels. As God commands, so grace compels to works of mercy and kindness. The love of Christ constraineth us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Grace comes with majesty upon the heart. Grace does not lie as a sleepy habit in the soul, but will put forth itself in vigorous and glorious actions. Grace cannot be concealed any more than fire. Like new wine, it will have vent. Grace does not lie in the heart as a stone in the earth, but as seed in the earth. It will spring up into good works. This doctrine may serve to justify the Church of England against the slander of malicious people. Julian denounced the Christians that they were solifidians, and the Church of Rome lays upon us this criticism, that we are against good works. Indeed, we plead not for the merit of good works, but we are for the use of them. Let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses. Titus 3.14. We preach that good works are necessary, both as they are enforced by the commands, and as they are necessary for the general good of mankind. We read that the angels had wings, and hands under their wings, Ezekiel 1.8. It may be symbolic of this truth. Christians must not only have the wings of faith to fly, but they must have hands under their wings to work the works of mercy. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Titus 3, 8. The lamp of faith must be filled with the oil of charity. Faith alone justifies, 
but justifying faith is not alone. You may as well separate weight from lead or heat from fire as works from faith. Good works, although they are not the causes of salvation, are certainly evidences of it. Although they are not the foundation, they are the superstructure. Faith must not be built upon works, but works must be built upon faith. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Romans 7, 4. Faith is the grace that marries Christ, and good works are the children that faith bears. For the vindication of the doctrine of the church, and in honor of good works, I will specify four truths. 1. Works are distinct from faith. It is vain to imagine that works are included in faith in the same way that the diamond is enclosed in the ring. No, for they are distinct, just as the sap in the vine is different from the fruit that grows upon it. 2. Works are the touchstone of faith. I will show thee my faith by my works. James 2.18. Works are faith's credentials. Bernard said that if you see a man full of good works, then by the rule of charity you are not to doubt his faith. We judge the health of the body by the pulse where the blood stirs and operates. O Christian, judge the health of your faith by the pulse of mercy and charity. It is with faith as with a deed in law. To make a deed valid, there are three things required the writing, the seal, and the witnesses. So, for the trial and confirmation of faith, there must be these three things the writing, the word of God, the seal, the spirit of God, and the witnesses, good works. Bring your faith to this scripture touchstone. Faith justifies works, and works testify of faith. 3. Works honor faith. These fruits adorn the trees of righteousness. Isaiah 61 3. Clement of Alexandria said, To let the generosity of your hand be the ornament of your faith, and to wear it as a holy bracelet around your wrists. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. Job 29, 14-15 While Job was the poor's benefactor and advocate, this was the emblem of his honor. It clothed him as a robe and crowned him as a diadem. Seeing good works as handmaids waiting upon this queen takes off the dislike and criticism and makes others speak well of Christianity. And four, good works are more excellent than faith in two respects. Good works are of a more noble and widespread nature. Although faith is more necessary for ourselves, good works are more beneficial to others. Faith is a receptive grace. It is all for self-interest. It moves within its own sphere. Works are for the good of others. And it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20.35 Good works are more visible and noticeable than faith. Faith is a more concealed grace. It may lie hidden in the heart and not be seen, but when works are joined with it, it shines forth in its native beauty. Although a garden may be adorned with flowers, they are not seen until the light comes. So the heart of a Christian may be enriched with faith, but it is like a flower in the night. It is not seen until works come. When this light shines before men, then faith appears in its bright colors. If it is the picture of a good man to be of a merciful disposition, then it sharply reproves those who are far from this disposition. Their hearts are like the scales of the Leviathan, shut up together as with a close seal. Job 41.15. They move only within their own circle, but do not involve themselves in the necessities of others. They have a flourishing estate, but like the man in the gospel, they have a withered hand and cannot stretch it out for good purposes. Mark 3.1-5. Everything they have is for themselves and not for Christ. 
These people are similar to the miser Nabal. Shall I take my bread and my water and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? 1 Samuel 25:11. It was said of the Roman emperor Pertinax that he had a large empire but a narrow, meager heart. There was a temple at Athens called the Temple of Mercy. It was dedicated to charitable uses. The greatest reproach was to upbraid someone for having never been in the Temple of Mercy. It is the greatest disgrace to a Christian to be called unmerciful. Covetous people, while they enrich themselves, debase themselves, setting up a monopoly and committing idolatry with wealth, thus making themselves lower than their angels, as God made them lower than His angels. In the time of a plague, it is sad to have your houses closed up, but it is even worse to have your hearts closed up. How miserable it is to have a sea of sin and not a drop of mercy! Covetous hearts, like the Leviathan, are firm as a stone. Job 41:24. One may as easily extract oil out of a flint as to extract the golden oil of charity out of their flinty hearts. The philosopher says that the coldness of the heart is a forewarning of death. When people's affections to works of mercy are frozen, this coldness of heart is ominous and sadly indicates that they are dead in sin. We read in the law that the shellfish was considered unclean. One reason might be because its meat was enclosed in the shell and was hard to come by. They are to be counted among the unclean who enclose all their possessions and wealth within the shell of their own cabinet, and will not let others be any better for it. How many have lost their souls by being so frugal! There are some people who will give the poor good words, and that is all. If a brother or sister be naked, and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? James 2, 15-16. Good words are just a cold kind of charity. The poor cannot live as the chameleon does upon the air. Even if your words are as smooth as oil, they will not heal the wounded. If your words drop as the honeycomb, Song of Solomon 4, 11, they will not feed the hungry. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass, or a tinkling cymbal. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. It is better to be as charitable as a saint than as eloquent as an angel. Let me tell you that those who are cruel to the poor are unchristian themselves. Unmercifulness is the sin of the heathen. Romans 1, 31. While you put off the bowels of mercy, you put off the badge of Christianity. Ambrose said that when we do not help someone whom we see is ready to perish with hunger, we are guilty of his death. If this rule holds true, then there are more people guilty of breaking the sixth commandment than we are aware of. James spoke a sad word For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. James 2.13. How do they think to find mercy from Christ if they have never showed mercy to the members of Christ's body? Dives, the rich man, denied Lazarus a crumb of bread, and Dives was denied a drop of water. At the last day, behold the indictment against the sinner, I was anhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. Matthew 25.42. Christ does not say, You took away my food, but You gave me none, You did not feed my members. Then follows the sentence, Depart from me, ye cursed. Matthew 25 41. When Christ's poor come to your doors, and you ask them to depart from you, the time may come when you will knock at heaven's gate, and Christ will say, Go from my door, depart from me, ye cursed. In a few words, covetousness is a foolish sin. God gave the rich man in the gospel that designation, Thou fool, Luke 12, 20. The covetous person does not enjoy what he possesses, 
He embitters his own life. He tortures himself with care either how to get or how to increase or how to protect an estate. What is the issue and result? Often, as a just reward of selfish tight-fistedness, God assails and decreases him in his outward estate. That saying of Gregory Nazianzen is to be seriously considered that many times God lets the thief take away and the moth consume that which is adversely and unmercifully withheld from the poor. Before I leave this matter, I am sorry that any who pass for honest people would be indicted in this way. I mean that I am sorry that any who profess Christianity would be impeached as guilty of the sin of covetousness and unmercifulness. I am sure that God's elect put on bowels of mercies. Colossians 3.12. But I tell you that devout misers are the reproach of Christianity. They are sores and spots in the face of religion. I remember that Aelian, in his history, reported that in India there is an animal having four feet and wings with a bill like the eagle's. It's hard to know whether to rank him among the beasts or the fowl. So I may say of miserly professors of Christianity that they have the wings of profession by which they seem to fly to heaven, but the feet of beasts walking on earth and even licking the dust. It's hard to know where to rank these people, whether among the godly or the wicked. Oh, take heed that since your religion will not destroy your covetousness, your covetousness does not destroy your religion. There is a fable of the hedgehog that came to the rabbit burrows in stormy weather and desired harbour, promising that he would be a quiet guest. However, once he had gotten shelter, he opened up his quills and remained until he had thrust the poor rabbits out of their burrows. In the same way, covetousness, although it has many hopeful pleadings to try to work its way and wind itself into the heart, yet as soon as you have let it in, this thorn will never stop pricking you until it has choked all good beginnings and thrust all religion out of your hearts. I proceed next to the exhortation to urge all Christians to put on bowels of mercies. Be ready to help alleviate the miseries and supply the needs of others. Ambrose called charity the sum of Christianity, and the Apostle James made it the very definition of religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James 1.27. The Hebrew word for poor signifies one who is empty or has become dry. The poor are exhausted of their strength, beauty, and substance. Like ponds, they are dried up. Therefore, let them be filled again with the silver streams of charity. The poor are, as it were, in the grave. The comfort of their life is buried. O Christians, help with your merciful hands to raise them out of the sepulchre. God sendeth the springs into the valleys. Psalm 104. 10. Let the springs of your generosity run among the valleys of poverty. Your sweetest and most gracious influence should fall upon the lower grounds. What is all your seeming devotion without unselfishness and mercifulness? Basil said that he knew many people who pray and fast, but who do not help those who are in distress. They are for a zeal that will not cost them anything. How are they any better? for all their seeming virtue. We read that the incense was to be laid upon the fire, Leviticus 16.13. The flame of devotion must be perfumed with the incense of charity. Aaron was to have a bell and a pomegranate. The pomegranate, as some of the learned observe, was a symbol of good works. Gregory Nazianzen said that those who have no good works lack the pomegranate. The wise men not only bowed the knee to Christ, but presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Matthew 2.11. Insincere displays of zeal are insufficient. We mustn't only worship Christ, but we must bestow something upon the members of his body. This is to present Christ with gold and frankincense. 
Isaac would not bless Jacob by only hearing his voice, but he felt and handled him, and supposing Jacob's hands to be Esau's, he blessed him. Genesis 27. God will not bless people by their voice, their loud prayers, or their devout discourses. But if he feels Esau's hands, and if their hands have worked good works, then he blesses them. Let me exhort you, therefore, to perform deeds of mercy. Let your fingers drip with the myrrh of generosity. Sow your golden seed. In this sense, it is lawful to put your money to use when you lay it out for good purposes. Remember that excellent saying of Augustine Give those things to the poor that you cannot keep, so that you may receive those things that you cannot lose. There are many opportunities to exercise your mercifulness. The poor fails in business or loses a job. Hear the cry of the orphans. Show compassion for the widow's tears. There are some who need employment. It will be good to help them find work. There are others who are past employment. Be as eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. In some cases, entire families are sinking and need some merciful hand to help support them before they completely sink. Before I provide arguments to support generosity and unselfishness, there are three objections in the way that I will attempt to remove. 1. We may give and then be in need ourselves at some time. Let Basil answer this. He said that wells that have their water drawn spring even more freely. The liberal soul shall be made fat. Proverbs 11.25 Martin Luther told of a monastery in Austria that was very rich while it gave annually to the poor. But when it stopped giving, the monastery began to decay. There is nothing lost by doing our duty. An estate may be imparted, yet not impaired. The flowers give honey to the bee, yet do not hurt their own fruit. When the candle of prosperity shines upon us, we may light our neighbor who is in the dark, yet never have less light ourselves. Whatever is given for pious uses, God replenishes it some other way just as he did with the loaves that were broken and were multiplied. Matthew 14, 17-20, 15, 34-37. Or as the widow's oil increased when it was poured out. 1 Kings 17, 10-14. 2. I cannot do as much as others. I cannot build churches, hospitals, and libraries, or pay for scholars at the university. If you cannot do as much, Yet do something. Let there be much good will, even if there is not much wealth to go with it. The widow's two mites cast into the treasury were accepted. Luke 21, 1-4. As Chrysostom observed, God did not look at the smallness of her gift, but at the largeness of her heart. Under the law, it was sufficient for those who could not bring a lamb for an offering to bring two turtle doves. We read that the people brought gold and silver and goat's hair to the building of the tabernacle. Exodus 35, 22-24 Origen said about this, I desire, Lord, to bring something to the building of your temple, if not gold to make the mercy seat on, if not silk to make the curtains on, yet a little goat's hair, so that I may not be found in the number of those who have brought nothing to your temple. And three. I don't have anything to give toward the needs of others. Do you have anything to give toward your lusts? Do you have money to feed your pride and your worldly pleasures, and can you find nothing to relieve the poor members of Christ? Even if this excuse is real, that you do not have such wealth, you may still do something by which you may express your kindness to the poor. You may sympathize with them, pray for them, and speak a word of comfort to them. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Isaiah 40, 2. If you cannot give them gold, you may speak a word in season that may be as apples of gold in pictures of silver. Proverbs 25, 11. Even more, you may be helpful to the poor by stirring up others who have the ability to help them. As it is with the wind, if a person is hungry, the wind will not fill him. 
but it can blow the sails of the mill and make it grind corn for the use of man. In the same way, even though you don't have much wealth yourself to help those who are in need, you may stir up others to help them. You may blow the sails of their affections, causing them to show mercy, and so you may still help your brother. Having answered these objections, let me now pursue the exhortation to mercifulness. End of part one of chapter 15.